Welcome to episode 142. We've got something a little bit different for you today. This episode is actually me being interviewed by the one and only Tiffany Cook, whom is the title-holding boxer, performance coach, and host of the very successful Roll With The Punches podcast. And she's a fellow Aussie, which makes this twice as good. We get stuck into a few topics like the origins of modern medicine and the modern healthcare industry, baby formula, causes of cancer and chronic disease, how intermittent fasting and nutrition works for women, and protein powders. It's an absolute doozy and Tiffany is an amazing interviewer. It was such an organic conversation and I'm really excited for you to hear it. So, here it is. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. Maddie Lansdowne, welcome to Roll With The Punches. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. I'm excited to have a bit of a deep dive on whatever we talk about today. (laughs) You know what? I always have a stringent plan. Do you know what I plan? Roll with the punches. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. (laughs) I plan on rocking up and that's as far as my diligent planning evolves. I like it. Let's (laughs) So welcome to the chaos that is rolling with the punches. I'm excited. (laughs) Thanks for letting me jump on the show. Oh, you were referred to me by a mutual friend of ours, Steve. Shout out to Steve. Thanks, Steve. was Steve, wasn't it? Yeah. I might better get that right. Say the wrong person, I'll get in trouble. Steve the marketing man. Yeah, what a legend. Hey, he's actually been been a great source of information and and Mm. inspiration at times, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. I found the same thing. Yeah. How do you know Steve? Um, Through another mutual friend. Uh, in sort of the health and wellness space that connected me with him, uh, talking about branding and marketing sort of stuff. So, nice. Yeah. Nice. Thanks for coming along for the ride, listeners, on our irrelevant banter here. <laughs> <laughs> You're interesting, though. You've got a podcast and it is called, and I love the sound of it, and I think my, <laughs> I think my listeners are going to be pretty into it. It's called How to Not Get Sick and Die. Straight to the point. Yeah, no mucking around there, is there? (laughs) (laughs) It does what it says on the box. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like a few people would be kind of into read that and go, oh, yeah, I might have a listen. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's been going for a couple of years now since, yeah, January 2019. Uh, Yeah, just interview lots of different health and wellness experts um, and I do a lot of solo episodes as well. The basic principle is that I worked in Western medicine in cancer research for seven years after becoming a scientist uh, and I've worked in multiple different fields including vaccine formulation, nutrition, etc cetera, etc cetera. and I got to the point where I realized that essentially modern medicine isn't really helping many people and so uh that's what led me to create the podcast and sort of create my become a nutritionist, create my little business and uh help people in a sort of more holistic way. I already feel like an hour's not enough. I already feel like <laughs> I want to go everywhere with you on this. Let's go everywhere. How, what made you go, I want to be a scientist for a start? You obviously didn't get banned from your so, so science class for playing with Bunsen burners in year nine. <laughs> well, that's not true. I, I was suspended several times in high school and I was a bit of a – because I'm actually from a, quite a heavy boxing family myself. Yes. So uh, my uncle is a Masters champion and my cousins all fought and so I did too, only on an amateur level and that this is like 20 years ago now. But 
Yeah, so when it came to high school, I was always this cheeky bastard that was just not scared of anyone and just loved stirring the pot. So, yeah, I got, I got in quite a bit of trouble growing up. Uh, but when it came to, yeah, high school and year 12, I, I just, I like this podcast, we, I just winged it. I just didn't study and then I got into university and just thought, oh, shit, I guess I should move to the city and do this uni thing. Do you know what? Sometimes I think, and only I only think this since starting the podcast and talking to some pretty elite humans like yourself, sometimes I think it's it's those personality types, it's those that will go against the grain mm. are the ones that when we finally find the thing, we mm. burrow down so deep and we just don't accept what might be seen as the answer or the the facts right now. So it's, it's those people that go, nah, I'm going to, nah. There's going to be another way. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Because if you just accept whatever you're told, like you're sort of, I don't know, there's just no point to existing if you're just going to be a robot for the rest of your life and just be like, oh, okay, no worries. Like even if you feel, and a lot of those people feel differently about stuff, but they never do anything about it. And so then, you know, what are you doing? You're living a lie? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't get. I can't wait to get into like the balance between science and a bit of woo-woo with you. I feel like it's going to oh, be a bit of everything. Oh. It's going to be the whole shebang. <laughs> so you worked in cancer um, research? Yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that. Yeah, that was cool. So I ended up there unexpectedly. Um, I just experienced a, a redundancy and it was really just the next job. So I didn't really go into working into a cancer hospital with any kind of ego about being a famous cancer scientist or anything like that and Pretty rapidly upon, you know, sort of starting there, I realized that of all these meetings that I had been to, and I used to go every single Monday to what's called a morbidity and mortality conference or meeting. Well, that sounds a- fun. <laughs> Life <laughs> of the party. No, um, but basically the whole point of that meeting is it's like a death audit. Um, and so you sort of review what happened, what went wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, after my first six months, I kind of was like, I've been to a lot of these meetings now and nobody's ever talked about the cause of the cancer and what actually led to the cancer happening in the first place. Wow. Um, it was always conversations around which therapies were essentially the therapy that killed them. Um, and so I was kind of like, you know, this doesn't make sense. I've never been in a meeting or a part of a research project or read a paper even where they talk about the cause of cancer and how we should fix that. And so that's the beginning. So I, my mum's a nurse. I grew up in the sticks in country Victoria. So I, I kind of thought medicine and science was like the most amazing thing that, you know, humans had ever created with their brains. And I was fully, you know, into it at this point. But th- at that point, I was kind of like, this just doesn't kind of add up. It just doesn't feel right. And that began my own personal research journey into the history of Western medicine, the history of the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and this was well before 2020 brought this stuff to people's, you know, vision to right into front of them, really. So, yeah. so yeah, I went on this path and learned about the Rockefeller family, which essentially started the first pharmaceutical business uh, in the late 1800s uh, as a byproduct, as byproducts from oil production. And they just need, they just wanted to make money out of the byproducts for their oil production. And in that process, because the Rockefeller family was essentially the first billionaire family on the planet, like ever, uh, from monopolizing the oil and rail industry, they had control of the resources, much of the world's resources. And so from there, what they did is they infiltrated 
the universities of the world with their money and said, look, do this new, this new thing called science. This like, and this is only a hundred, you know, 150 years ago. And we'll, we'll give you a heap of cash, which is, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to a uni in 1800 and 80 is like crazy money. Right. So, but all you have to do is put one of our guys on your board. And they slowly did that over a 50-year period, sort of from about 1880 to sort of 1928, where they just let, let these guys slowly infiltrate all of the education bodies in the world. And in that process, they also started criminalizing some alternative therapies that had been around for thousands of years. Uh, and so I learned all of this and I sort of, you know, went up the chain of the last 100 years and then sort of got to where I am today. And I was like, holy shit. This is messed up. This is all about business, money, uh, make, and you know, making sure people can keep coming back. Like we keep you alive long enough as long as you can keep coming back to buy the medicine. Mm. Do you know what's interesting? This morning, it's probably not interesting. Oh, well, it is to me. <laughs> this morning I was doing a <laughs> podcast with Harps and the topic I chose and wanted to unpack was what, what results in us and what influences us to think and believe and choose and do and be who we are today. And as you're saying that, I was just like thinking of the evolution of how they just slowly, slowly changed what people believed and and controlled that, like the mm. environment. They just they just took these people and they seeded them in and then that changes totally. the environment and that, that ch- in a, essentially mm. that changes humanity. I'm getting fired up, Maddie. And when you think about it, like if it's, yeah, I, I get super fired up on this topic. But when you think about human psychology, like we get excited about new ideas and new things. And you, back then you can't just Google it. The only information sources are the guys at the pub or at work or your friends that, or the newspaper. And this was, you know, potentially even before radio existed. So you were limited resources. So when somebody comes along and says, there's a new thing, everyone's like, oh my God, there's a new thing. How exciting. Whereas, you know, in the day of Instagram and like we see new things a thousand times a day and it's, we can't Google it to see if it's legit or not legit. So you can understand these, the excitement of people back then being like, mm. wow, there's this revolution in the way that we do medicine and healthcare. And so I totally understand how humans got onto the idea as an opportunity. Plus thinking of the businesses like the universities and educational institutions were like, sweet, we got $100,000. This is like, you know, loads of money to make sure this business keeps moving forward and we can keep educating the masses. And so it makes sense. I, th- I think one thing that we forget, though, is that I don't think many people can think beyond their, par- their grandparents' sort of age. And, and these things have been being built, like the patriarchy and stuff like that, for thousands of years. And every sort of leader is is part of a long plan of generations and generations of leaders and so most people are like oh that didn't happen like or no nah, it didn't that it hasn't been a plan for 10,000 years or you know whatever number but I, I think most people can't really make their frame of reference bigger than grandpa's age yeah far out tell me more tell me tell me some more Things that are going to shock me about what you learned when you dug into that very big, very deep hole that is the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, so many things. And, I mean, the, the scary thing is that I also came across a large cohort of doctors and scientists and nurses that had either been threatened 
Uh, that had either gone missing. There's a long list of cancer people that have suspiciously gone missing in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, because a lot of a lot of people that were kind of like you were saying in the beginning, these people that go against the grain, saw it for what it was. Um, and I'm actually reading a book at the minute where um, uh, they interview a group of um, elderly women in Africa. I forget which country. But they talk about when they first saw Western medicine coming in and this group of women were protesting against hospitals being built because they were like, this will destroy the the babies, essentially, the strength, the genetic strength of our humans that we produce by introducing a medical solution. So there's a lot of people throughout history that have intuitively known that you can't beat nature, like you can't do that. And so this group of women obviously got told to piss off because, you know, capitalism is more important and we can get into the African countries and make a buck over there as well. And it's easy to do clinical trials in poor nations because we can incentivize them by giving them food or giving them money that they've never, you know, don't have access to. So yeah, it's a, there's lots of people throughout history that have been against it from day one, have seen it for what it is. Uh, and this is a, not to say that it doesn't have its place. I think the issue is that in modern day, it probably needs ten percent of the pie, and it's got about ninety-seven percent of the pie. <laughs> you uh, you make a really good point about that about that birthing and then what that's doing for the generations ahead. But I mm. remember at some point, and I'll screw this up because I don't know really, but I remember hearing that how uh, what are they called cesareans mm. will result in a weaker immune system because that. That yep. process of birthing through the birth canal and that squeezing of mm-hmm. the baby's body through, yeah, whatever it does, you might know. I don't. Clearly, <laughs> I've forgotten, but I do remember the theory. Yeah, and I totally. remember thinking, "Wow, I bet a lot of mothers, when they're given the option, I bet they don't know this." There's mm. a lot of talk about whether or not breastfeeding or feeding formula is good for the immune system, and they make choices based on that. But I bet that there's a lot less people that are actually aware of any repercussions of choosing the way of birth for the child, not just for the mother. I I think you're totally right on that. And I think we've got a culture that's about convenience now. And so people are like, oh, I'm having a baby on the 6th of August at 7 (laughs) o'clock. And because they just book in their cesareans. But you're right, the, the, the muscular experience that the baby has along with there's a lot of different bacteria through the vaginal canal That's that the right, baby's yeah. exposed to. And, and with its first breaths, it's, it breathes a lot of that in, that in and it populates its microbiome. And it's wow. the same with, with breast milk as well is that that facilitates the fauna and flora of the gut. And so if we're not putting in biological mo- molecules that, that match the environment that we came from, a.k.a. We, we lived in our mum, right? So yeah. the, if the food's coming from our mum, it's, it's, it's already built for us, whereas formula is, is artificial and synthetic. It, it's not to say that it doesn't do the job, but it's, a, it's, you know, it's definitely second best. <laughs> yeah, wow. Wow. So, I had a question. I know that I'm a man, by the way, so you know, <laughs> no, no, no judgment on any mums out there for their choice, choices. <laughs> yeah, they're all firing up at the moment. This dude telling us about breastfeeding. Hey, obviously you settled on because your, or what I see is your main, I could be wrong, but your main thing is really nutrition now. Mm. So obviously out of everything you dived into, you see that as, would you see that as the number one thing that is influencing our health? 
No, I don't know. I think there's a lot of things that are competing for that top spot. But I think that I landed there because when I started to being in the cancer hospital, I, I literally did a one day I just got to the point where I did a walk of the hospital. It took about two hours. I went to every single ward and bed that I had access to. And I just tallied up whether people were overweight or not. Um, and basically it was like 80% of people were chronically overweight that I, I was able to see. And so, and the data reflects this as well that's already published. And so I needed to see it for myself and I, and it was true. And, and even in the waiting rooms, it's really, really obvious. And so I was like, okay, so if overweight people get cancer or get diabetes or get Alzheimer's or get insert disease, then one step closer to the cause is, okay, they're overweight, you know, they're, or they're obese. And then I was like, what causes that? One step back getting closer to the cause is obviously the nutrition or the food that they're putting in their body. Now, that's where I saw where the most change could happen because I thought this is like the cancer that you develop happens at home in your life, right? Mm. Then you come to a hospital and then you're given a treatment and then you go back into the world that created the disease. And mm. so if mm. we're not changing the home environment, whether that be the food, the toxins, the mold, the stressful relationship we're in that causes cortisol and adrenaline problems, uh, you know, all of these types of things, if we're not changing that environment, of course, like 90% of cancer patients that get, you know, their cancer removed get relapse because they haven't changed the environment where that happened. And the way that one of the big pillars of that is we're all going to eat pretty much every single day. And so if we can start changing that bit, we're less likely to become obese and then less likely to get any type of disease, basically. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so many questions. <laughs> oh, Matty, far out. What <laughs> one I want to ask, and this is a bit of an odd one and I've never really thought about it like this before, I want to mm -hmm. ask you the importance over because you just talked about obesity and I know, my, funnily enough, when I was jumping on this um this podcast with you, I thought that I would go straight into talking about fasting and intermittent fasting, mm -hmm. and I will touch on that definitely, but it's kind of taken a bit of a backseat. But I know that because you said before about I know that longevity, so food restriction and has a direct correlation with longevity. So mm -hmm. when we start to restrict, restrict our eating, we can tend to affect our longevity positively. Mm -hmm. So yep. what I wanted to ask was, and not that one's more important, than the other obviously quality of what we eat is extremely important but if the quality yep. of what we eat is on point yep does then the quantity of that still have negative mm. effects and to what degree that's a good question so the reason that people so the, first up like i want to go up the ladder so that it makes sense for everybody so basically why do we eat right so we eat because the body needs fuel to run it needs energy to run but what are the motivating factors in the first world where we've got access to food all the time and nobody's really starving nobody's really chronically malnutritioned so the two reasons are that we our psychology so we've got emotional eating, like which is one of the biggest problems. So the next step back from nutrition is actually your habits and your psychology, right? Mm. So that's one of the biggest things. And then the second is a lack of satiation. And satiation means being full after you eat. So we don't get satiated when there's a lack of protein in the meal and there's a lack of nutrition in the meal. So... You know, you think you go to an event, maybe it's a party, you eat all this food and you just feel gross. You're absolutely stuffed, but you still get home and swing on the pantry door. And you're like, I just, just, you know, I just could go something one more, maybe. You've been following me around. 
<laughs> that's a totally normal thing. And that's because the modern diet and the modern options are energy dense. Like they're, they're, they take up a physical amount of space in our gut and there's so much energy packed into them, but they're nutrient dense. So we're not, we're still seeking this protein input or this nutrient input. So to go back to your question, if we're putting in whole real foods, which are nutrient dense uh, and, and including a sufficient amount of protein, because protein is essentially what runs and maintains our cells, the, the carbs and fats sort of burn the energy for the metabolism and to do things, but the, the protein is the body and our cells are proliferating, separating and rebuilding and repairing every day. So we need protein in, in every single meal. So, so the, the amount that we put in can reduce only if the nutrient density goes up. Mm, mm. It's funny because as a always fairly fortunately lean human, mm-hmm. uh, I've studied epigenetics last year with PH360. I don't know if you've heard mm, of them, but we start. Yeah. yeah, so I'm what, the, what they call the activator, mm-hmm. high in testosterone and adrenaline. So I'm a little feeding machine and that <laughs> means that I get good muscular development and I don't tend to put on weight as easily, mm-hmm. as easily as some other types. But often, when, especially when I was boxing, say when I first got into boxing and I, mm-hmm. you know, I was pretty, like, I still had a really reasonably great diet even when I was fairly uneducated about it because I did have a bit of an interest in knowing what was what food was doing. So mm-hmm. my eight, I, I think I always live by that 80-20 rule, so I don't want to sound like a complete nuff, but that 20% <laughs> was like I had an Addiction with chocolate. You know, I would eat a block, a family block of mm-hmm. old gold chocolate. You know, if it was in front of me, I'd eat it. And sometimes I'd eat bloody two blocks. And it was funny because people were like, well, you, you know, you're skinny, so it doesn't matter. Like, you can eat anything. Mm. And I used to always say, yeah, but that's, it's not the case. Like, yeah. my energy levels, I'll end up with bloody diabetes. Like, the repercussions are much greater than, it's kind of mm. a, disservice that it doesn't have a a physiological or a a composition effect on me because it's allowing me to get away with it day to day. But I know in my mind that my performance is dropping, my behavior is changing Mm -hmm. my behaviors. It's doing, it's God knows what that sugar is doing in my system, Maddie. And I'm sure you will tell me exactly (laughs) what it's doing, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, no, you're totally on onto it there, and it's yeah. There's been marathon runners that have been diagnosed with type two diabetes just because they're you know they're in the fortunate group that don't pack on body fat, but you're you're still degrading the you know your brain, and you are what you eat. As corny as it sounds, the cells that are in your body are built from the food and the fuel that you put in. So if you put crap in, you build crap. Like and, and most of the bo- the body's cells are replaced over you know days, weeks, months, or years. Uh, mm. Like se- like our bones take about seven years to replace. They're about the about the longest cell in the body that takes you know to proliferate and grow new ones. Because obviously we don't want them changing every day, or we'd all be jellyfish, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So, so the, so, you know, what you put in builds, if you don't pack the fat, you could be building a brain that's full of inflammation and full of crap that you've eaten yes. or organs or, you know, dysregulating your hormonal responses. And this has catastrophic effects for people that are, you know, aging, but also for, um, you know, young people like, oh, I'm just, I'm just young. But if you're at an age where you want to have babies, 
you're like the, the what you're eating during your pregnancy and this is the same for men men should be equally as prepared to conceive a child because your genetics contribute right 50 percent. Mm. so it whatever the genetics you have switched on and in full swing when you conceive a baby like a lot of blokes think this is just a pump and dump dump exercise right that's i've got no <laughs> got no involvement otherwise and, and if there's a miscarriage or something serious it's her fault right it's her body oh yeah right but it's 50 50 because you can get really weak survival genes from a super unhealthy male right so if you're building your body up and during the pregnancy the baby is built not from your diet from the mother's body it will it takes from the bones Mm -hmm. it takes from the muscles and so we need to be nutritionally abundant irrelevant of what age right that is the first time in my entire life anyone has ever framed that and i think for for a lot of the women that will hear this god what a what a perspective to hear because they reality. do because obviously you're carrying the child and when you have a miscarriage, you you know, I've had I've had people in this podcast that have had fertility issues and, you know, had mm-hmm. to go down adoption and surrogacy paths and, you know, the, the emotional burden they carry. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Totally. Yeah. It's, and it's such a heavy situation to be in and on a more, not that any individual is to blame, but on a broader scale, that's, you know, it's the beginning of de-evolution. The modern diet is creating like infertility was once like not even a thing because humans were eating the most pure nutrition and food. And actually they used to, they used to regulate the tribe size by um, making sure that one men and women didn't sleep together after they conceived a baby. And this is, this was a big thing in African cultures so that we don't get too many people that we can't look after. And I don't think you can find a society on earth. That's got, you know, people that are losing their shit left, right and center. Cause there's too many of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wow. Hey, tell me about when you mentioned protein and protein such an important thing. Just mm. is so obviously going to real foods. Real mm-hmm. foods is obviously the priority, but tell me about protein in terms of protein supplementation, shakes, you know, mm-hmm. should they shouldn't they? How much protein should they be having? Is there mm-hmm. a time of day they should be having it? They have the same amount every day. This is a good question. I was I've been asked this question a lot about protein powders. I think 
I, I think the go-to in any nutritional or food situation should be the real thing. And then supplementation should just be on top to fill the gap um, because you, for the most part, you can't replace the quality nutrition that comes with the protein in a piece of kangaroo or in a, you know, organic piece of yes. chicken uh, or anything like that. So I think supplementation should be secondary. Now, sort of in the nutrition space, I think there's a lot of data to suggest that dairy is quite inflammatory. And the reason I bring that up is because most protein supplementation on the market is a derivative of milk. So it's casein, it's a casein-based protein. And most people actually lose the enzyme to break down uh, milk before they're even adults. Mm. Uh, 70% of the world's adults are unable to metabolize uh, dairy and and lactose, right? Wow. So so when it comes to protein powders, I always steer people towards options that are non-dairy. So we're talking hemp, we're talking pea, that type of thing. But that's after I've made sure that they're totally loaded on kangaroo, wallaby, crocodile, you know, all of these types of naturally mm. hunted uh, sort of options because wild is also even better than you can buy at a supermarket. Um, so yeah, I think supplementation is an option, but if you're getting up and just smashing a protein shake without some real protein for your gut to digest, then you switch it around. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Did I cut you off from answering that quality versus quantity Mm. question in its entirety? I can't remember. I get so excited. That's a good question. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I don't know. So quality versus quantity, we're in a situation where people are saying, you know, have a multivitamin because celery no longer has what it's you know what it used to a hundred years ago and mm. a lot of supplements are synthetic ver- like medicine is uh, synthetic versions of what nature is intended to do so my argument is well if there's not as much in one apple have two you know like if i mean not that we should eat it be eating an abundance of fruit but like you know <laughs> If, you know, if, if the, I mean, that's why I like naturally hunted food as well, because uh, when it comes to meat and protein sources is because the best source of like meat and protein you can get is something that lived its natural life. Mm. Like, so it's, it's usually a fit animal. Its diet was diverse in the way that it needs to be for that animal. So their immune system and their microbiome is diverse. And then you get that, right? Whereas when we go to the supermarket, go down to Woolies, get the cheapest uh, beef steak off the shelf, it's probably got uh, hormonal dysregulation. The, 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 the beast hasn't actually seen the sun in many cases. So it's got poor vitamin D and, and all of the problems that come with a lack of vitamin D. It's got antivirals in it. It's got all sorts of vaccines in it and we get you know we get the end of at the end of its life and it's lived that horrible stressful cortisol life we then ingest it so i think yeah wild caught meat where possible is definitely the sort of supreme option when it comes to quality mm, mm, you just yeah far out <laughs> getting my wild caught beef now <laughs> You made any other options sound quite unappealing then. Talk, <laughs> yeah, talk. Grass-fed's good. Anything grass-fed and organic. The, the, you got to watch out for the classifications to I, too. Yeah, I am a bit of a, a meat snob when it comes to steak, so I do go to the butchers <laughs> and get good steak and only because I'm a snob, not so much. But now I know that I'm making a really solid choice with that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, tell me about some of the best practice or how we how we fast, why we fast, who should fast, who shouldn't fast, and what mm-hmm. are the fasting options? All the things fasting. All right, cool. Yes. 
So, um, I mean, intermittent fasting has been a big thing on, you know, on the gram lately of the last few years and uh, all over the place. But I, I guess the first thing with intermittent fasting is just to clear up for people that you're, you're actually always doing intermittent fasting. It's not like a new fad. It is from a marketing perspective, but humans have intermittent fasted every day for all of human history because it's just the cycle between the time that I don't eat and the time that I do eat. The idea idea of an intermittent fasting protocol or schedule though is when you're, you know, you control that a little more. So it's like for 16 hours of the day, I'm not going to do it. For eight hours of the day or not going to eat for eight hours of the day, I'm going to eat. Uh, And it's not about, it's not particularly about calorie restriction either. It's just about allowing your body a window of time essentially to recover and have a break. Uh, The latest research out of the US shows that people are eating about six to 11 times a day. Uh, And so if you think about that and you do that every day for your entire life, there's no wonder there's so many gut issues and diseases when you have never given your gut a break, right? You've never given it a day to heal and recover. And so the idea of intermittent fasting, uh, a lot of people obviously use it for weight loss. And many of the people I work with, we use it in that context. But I think there's far more benefit from just giving your body some recovery time on a daily basis. Mm, yeah. So what are your recommendations for people? Uh, for, for, or firstly, mm-hmm. who should not intermittent fast and yeah, why? Good. That's a good question. So anyone that's orthorexic, anorexic, bulimic, or pregnant. So the first three, uh, because they're eating disorders, and that's some serious psychological stuff that you need to deal with with a, with a psych. Um, and then obviously there's just not enough data with uh, pregnant women, and we want pregnant women to be as nutritionally abundant as possible. They're like as much as you know, cravings drive a lot of that process. High quality food really needs to be going into pregnant women as much as possible. Um, outside of that, virtually anyone can do it as long as you're doing it in the right way. You're not restricting yourself of any particular nutri- uh, nutrient group that you know your body needs to function. I think the most important thing is that removing the diet culture is the is the important mm-hmm. aspect, right? Is mm-hmm. because a lot of people are like, all right, I've been looking this particular diet up and whatever diet it is, on Monday, I'm just going to go 16 hours a day fasting for the first time ever. And they try it and they're like, oh, this is horrible. I had headaches, which are usually sugar and carb withdrawals in the brain. Like, And there's all of these sort of behavioral responses that are like, oh, I'm forcing myself. So I think we first and foremost need to remove the concept of diet and restriction and deprivation out of the psychology of it. And with any diet, it should be one tweak a week. So if you sort of monitor yourself, if you want to do intermittent fasting, and, and you check out where you're at normally, right? So get up, check, oh, yeah, I had breakfast at 8 o'clock and then check in the afternoon or the evening when you finish your last bit of food. It's like 8 p.m. And be like, okay, so when I start on Monday or whichever day, I'm just going to move it one hour, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We would just want to just one tweak a week because we don't want to behavior from a behavior standpoint. We don't want to freak out. We don't want our metabolism to freak out because that yo-yo dieting is why a lot of people and particularly women, uh, you know, in their middle age and they're like, I've just gained every time I've tried to diet, I came, came off losing a few kilos and the kilos just came back on plus more. So you don't want to perpetuate that cycle. So yeah, most people can do it as long as it's done properly and supported. It's progressively, you know, approached so that, yeah, there's no, nobody's bodies are freaking out, but, um, 
But uh, and, and it's different for everyone. So some people can skip breakfast. Uh, but if you're working out and you're particularly interested about you know your body composition, if it's like so for me, for example, uh, I get up and do a workout. So in the hour post workout, I make sure that I get my protein in. So that means for me, uh, I choose that. By the end of the day, you know, I, I kind of skip dinner essentially. But everyone's lives different. It, there's about 50 plus different intermittent fasting protocols that can be used for disease states, for weight loss, for just general longevity and health. So there's an array of options on the menu. <laughs> mm, mm. I've definitely played with it from time to time and different versions of it. Talk to me about women and because I know there's a lot of literature out there on female hormones. Should mm-hmm. they fast for less time? Should they should they watch their cycle and do anything specific to to their own cycle? Mm-hmm. Good question. So I think yeah, women need to be much more um, safe and progressive. So if you're going to try it for the first time in sort of say next week, you might just pick two days to try, but still you're one tweak a week, right? So. That you're just slow because there's a there's a saying that the longer the adaptation, the better the stability, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you can't adapt to something overnight. So if you make it slow and progressive, your body will start to really feel stable in that space, uh, and your genetics will start adapting to it. And so I think for women, we need to support the um, we need to support the hormones as well. There's a lot of data out there that says. You know, carbs are actually actually super important for for building women's hormones and their estrogen management and things like that. And so whilst a low-carb diet uh, or even a keto diet can be really, really beneficial, and the idea of intermittent fasting is that we actually dip our toes into a ketogenic state a couple of times a week or each day, uh, that for women, carbs are actually really, really beneficial. And a lot of people that are overweight are likely to have some kind of hormonal dysregulation. So they want to support that. And that's one of the things that you don't hear on Instagram from the keto crowd is the amount of amenorrhea that happens in that group, which is loss of your loss of your period, because you're not just you're not building any of the enzymes or precursors or hormonal the hormonal framework that supports that healthy process of normal menstruation, right? So mm. women need to be really smooth about it uh, and it comes back to quality as well. So when we are eating, like we want to make sure that we're feeling good, we're putting good food in, we're feeling full and satiated. So at no point do we want to be, feel like we're depriving ourselves. You know you're doing it wrong if by the end of your fast you're like, I'm hungry and I'm forcing myself not to eat. You, you're getting you're getting yeah. things wrong. You're, you're either not working on your mindset and your habits or your microbiome hasn't been set up appropriately for you to reprogram all of the the physical food cravings that your gut bacteria have. Yeah, wow. When what about as women are peri and going through menopause? So perimenopausal. Fuck, am I even saying that right? God, come on, Tiff, you're a female. I'm nearly <laughs> there myself, mate. Yeah, that that thing when women are there, and as they go through menopause, I get a multitude. If my listeners, any time I touch on master's age athletes or menopause or any of those topics, they're reaching out, they're putting on weight, the weight's not moving the way it used to. What can you tell me mm-hmm. about that process? So there's a really interesting process which most people don't know about. So when you get to that perimenopause, menopause stage and you start gaining weight, it's not because you know you're secretly unconsciously in your sleep eating donuts right it's because <laughs> your hor- your hormonal system is starting to shut down but your body still needs your other parts of your body still need that 
that, that horm- those hormones in order to function. So the fat cells produce those hormones. That's why we gain the body fat, right? So it's actually a good sign that your body knows what to do in order to outsource, essentially outsource the production of those hormones. So that's why that actual process happens. So a lot of people just think, oh, you know, it just happens and, you know, it's because I can't regulate what I eat and they beat themselves up and it's no, it's, it's your genetics doing what your body's designed to do in that situation. Mm. Is there anything that they can do to counteract that in a healthy way? Mm, that's a good question. So by the time we get to that age, it really depends on your history of diet culture and things like that. And then it fundamentally comes back to the same principle is that, you know, change, start changing over the nutrition that you put in your body, start reducing the sugar, start reducing the vegetable oils. That's a really big one that sort of gets forgotten about is that the vegetable oils that we cook with are catastrophic to the human body and the brain and your arteries and probably mm. the ma- major contributor to um, atherosclerosis and heart disease. Uh, and many diseases, but vegetable oils, so, you know, we're talking your canola oils, your peanut oils, these types of things. We, we want to kind of steer clear of those. They do a lot of damage in our cooking and our fast food and things like that. So it's it's the same general advice because uh, because as long as the, the right food is going in and that we're fasting, you know, a healthy amount each day and that will look different for everybody, the body will regulate itself into the right pattern right so but Mm. it depends what we're doing on the other side of that equation and it's not just nutrition stress and by we by the time we get to perimenopause and menopause we've probably been stressed about a fair amount of stuff in our life right so (laughs) the problem with stress is that when we have that fight or flight cortisol response is our body doesn't know the difference between running away from a car that's chasing us down on the road and we actually need to physically you know run from the problem it doesn't know the difference between that or sitting at your desk, getting an email from your boss or your kids pissing you off. And so metabolically, what happens in the body is the core, like you have that stress in it and it just releases all of this uh, glycogen stores. So sugar into the bloodstream for you to use that energy to run away. So you don't get run over or get chased by a rhinoceros or whatever it is. Um, but if you're just sitting down, if you've just released all of that sugar into the bloodstream and you're not doing a physical activity to burn the sugar, then it just goes back into storage and it's usually going to be in your stomach or for women on their bum, right? Because we're, we're stressed, we're stressed out and we're putting it out there. And then it just goes out of the, the, the muscle stores and out of the liver stores and goes straight onto our belly and onto our bum. So stress is such a major factor for weight loss. And so to counteract that, First, we need to like go on the long journey of learning how to actually manage our emotions and separate ourselves from the event and our triggers. And then we want to move into a space of coming down from that using breathing exercises, hypnosis, meditation. So stress is like part of the program that I work with people. It's like nutrition and the way that we manage our body in a stressful situation are the two core pillars of weight loss, really. Mm, I love that. That is awesome. When you talked earlier about the the fasting and not getting to a point where you're, you know, like you're holding out for that last hour and you're stressed. Mm-hmm. Now, with my experience, and I found the the most challenging thing for me was my schedule day to day is very different. So sometimes I was taking morning classes and sometimes mm-hmm. I was taking evening classes. So my preference would be to have a really either really late breakfast or mm-hmm. lunch 
and then be able to eat before bed so that, so that I'm not going to bed hungry and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not very good at being hangry. Now, in the beginning <laughs> of me doing that, it always start with a, a longer wind, a shorter window and extend it out. Mm-hmm. But I know that my hunger hormones, I was saying to somebody on another podcast recently, with our thinking, I can not be hungry look at the clock, see that it's 12 o'clock, and within five minutes I have five minutes, five minutes I have <laughs> real live hunger going on. I'm like, it's lunchtime. I just saw it, but like five minutes before I've gone, oh, it's lunchtime. I'm not hungry. So mm-hmm. talk me through that. How do we? How do people navigate that? Because I, I think that, well, from my experience, there was this time for that hunger to settle, and then once I got into a fasting schedule, then mm-hmm. that hunger wasn't an intense erratic hunger that I used to have when I got up and ate straight away for no reason. Mm-hmm. I think it's like uh, basically anyone can relate to a situation in their life, and it's, uh, there's often one in the morning for most of us where we do a routine. And it might be it might be just going to put a coffee on. You might even not not want a coffee, but or even go to go into the office and you have smell that coffee, and it's it's just part of what you've learned in the morning as part of a normal routine, and it's familiar. And therefore, if we go into an evolutionary level, familiar means safe. Yeah. So a lot of people have in the morning like some type of learned process which makes them familiar with you know getting up and starting their day and their day going normally and this is often on a subconscious level we're not really aware of this because we're half asleep and it's the same with uh same with hunger so we have learned hunger and a lot of that has been conditioned from when we were younger breakfast is the most important meal of the day if you don't eat everything on your plate the kids in africa will die you know these ridiculous (laughs) statements that make no sense but they condition us to behave in a certain way whether it be Oh, I've got to get up because breakfast is the most important meal of the day, which it probably is for a five-year-old that needs to grow, right? <laughs> but, but when you're 25 or 20 or 35 or 50, you, you don't really need to grow much more. So you need less food going in, right? So, yeah. so we've got all these situations that are learned hunger. And, and just like the clock, 12 o'clock, you, you can just you trigger you know, a memory which is attached to a bunch of hormones and and signals that go off in your brain and they trigger that release of ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone, because you've learned that at that time of the day or when you smell that thing or when you do that particular activity, it's time to eat. So, Mm. and and that's just conditioning. And you can progressively, same with the one tweak a week thing, is you progressively sort of condition yourself out of that, but it takes time. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Uh Oh God, so many more questions, but I'm gonna have to wrap it up because I, you're not, you haven't got all day. But if you're open to it, at some point, I'm probably gonna reach out again and get you back on because it's really ace. But as that. as we wrap it up, I'd love to hear what you would, and obviously this would change for everybody. God, mm-hmm. there were so many things I wrote down. I'm, I feel like <laughs> crying that I can't ask you now. But tell me your three top pieces of of nutritional advice and why. Three top pieces. Okay, number one, liver is the most nutritional thing on the planet that you can put in your body. Uh, Why? Because it's the most nutritional thing you can put in your body, basically. So, (laughs) um, yeah, so if anybody's nutritionally deficient or has growing children or has has a situation with their body where they're trying to recover from anything, putting liver into your diet, it doesn't taste nice, so it's good in curries. It's good in things with lots of spices. Um, another good hack to the system is if you use a lot of ground beef or beef mince, you can just make it like 
10 or 20%, you know, liver or heart or, or organ meat, awful meat. You don't even know it's there, but you're getting mm. the nutritional benefit. So a number one thing would be that. And if you really can't do it, you can get it in capsules. You can do supplement it. So there's that option as well. So that would be number one. Uh, number two is that no matter how well you eat, if you don't deal with your stress, your body's still not going to do what you want it to do. Mm. Number three. All right, what's number three? Number three would probably be hydration. Uh, so a lot of people don't realise that a lot of their ills and ails and aches and pains are from decades of, of not getting enough water intake. The, the data shows that Australians get about 1.1 to 1.5 litres on average and the recommendation on average is 2.5 litres a day. So, for instance, to, to make sense of it, is that your spinal fluid is one of the last places in the body that gets topped up with, with water. And so a lot of people that have... <laughs> a lot of people that have back problems or disc problems or you know things like that is because the water hasn't really arrived there for like 25 years so uh so that so yeah hydration is not just about not feeling thirsty it's about making sure that it gets to all the cells in your body and everywhere that it needs to go so i think they're the three three tips that would help a lot of people make a lot of change without having to pay a cent that is that is awesome. You really that liver one really threw the spanner in for me. I've written that down. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Maddie. That's awesome. How can my listeners find you and get more of your wisdom? Do you work? How can they work with you? Where can they search for you? Yeah, thanks, Tiff. So, um, how to not get sick and die is the podcast. So you can find me on whatever podcast app you're listening to this podcast. Um, other than that, Instagram, just at Maddie Lansdowne, same for all the social platforms, really. Um, and I work with people in a group coaching setting and also a one-on-one -on -one setting uh, doing weight loss and really just helping people become their healthiest self. And so I've got a Facebook group which you can jump into and that's free and that's where you can start inquiring about the services that I, that I offer. Amazing. I'll have all those links in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been an awesome conversation. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.